The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ruth, entitled, The Broken Road to Glory. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Ruth, chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also put out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is Rob Spikestra. I am the headmaster at Morningstar Academy, a classical Christian school. And we're all about uh, great stories. Uh, our, our students read ancient stories. They read medieval stories. They read modern stories. Because really, we are a people, a people of stories. We, we like good stories. Uh, Pastor Justin will be pleased to know our eighth graders are working through Lord of the Rings right now. Imprinted in my memory is my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Riggs, who, uh, who was reading Where the Red Fern Grows um, after, after recess. I'm sure to settle us down a bit. But I'm guessing the majority of, of us here who could name a story they have read or have been read to them that shaped their lives in some way. 
We enjoy watching good stories. When Star Wars was first shown, it was shown when the majority of theaters were one screen. Yeah, there were a few of those crazy theaters that had two screens, but most of them only had one screen. And a multi-episode film was unheard of. And yet, 40 years later, we're still enjoying that story. We are a people of stories because each of us here have a story. And we are constantly examining that story. We're interpreting that story according to our conception of some greater hidden story that we may find ourselves in. There's this inkling within us that we realize we're just part of something greater, but we're not exactly sure what it is. And so uh, we, we may even come down to that simple uh, story called evolution where we at least can understand ourselves as a gathering of atoms put together who are working through uh, this thing called the survival of the fittest. There have been a recent string of movies that are examining this greater story, ranging from uh, the larger plot with a sinister uh, personal forces to lesser benign uh, stories, uh, lesser benign uh, plots with benign forces, The Matrix, Inception, Interstellar, a number of others, entertaining speculation that they are, uh, they are not presented as revelation. The beauty that we have this morning is, is that we have God's revealed word, which shows us, which reveals to us this hidden story and a story where we have this God that's behind it, who in, in, in the very center of who he is, is a God of loving kindness. The book of Ruth is about God inviting us into the reality of his story. It is about restoring our story to his reality. It's an invitation to interpret our story around the nuclear core of the character of God that empowers his actions towards all those who are his. And again, what we're going to discover is this. That at the nuclear core of his character is his loving kindness, his steadfast love that transforms not only the extraordinary, but the ordinary. Let's pray. So, Father, uh, we pray for help. We, we pray, Father, that as we are all having conversations within our own heads moment by moment, as we're interpreting our very own story, Father, we pray that you'd help us to, uh, in one sense, repent from our understanding, our fallen understanding of who you are, our fallen understanding of this hidden uh, greater story. We pray, give us repentance today and give us faith, rather, in the real story and in the real God behind that story. So, Father, this is a work that only you can do, and so we invite you to do that through your living word, the word of God. We pray, please speak to us through this story, this ancient story of Ruth. Uh, minister to us this day. May you receive all the glory for our very own good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, chapter one in Ruth was really about the extraordinary. And so we're going to have to go back there for just a minute, and just in case you weren't here. But Naomi's life was tragically extraordinary. Didn't it strike you as kind of extraordinary of the tragedies that were occurring uh, in her life? Here, here is a woman who first loses her husband, Elimelech, and, and then she, be, she becomes a widow somewhat early in life, probably around, they think, 30s or the, the 40s. But then she outlives not just one son, but she outlives a second son. 
So that we have this sad phrase in chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That's extraordinary, really. It's, it's extraordinary tragedy that has entered into this woman's life. But even more tragic is that she is in a foreign country, but not just in any foreign country, in a country that has really bad, bad blood uh, against Israel, and she is there of her and her husband's own choosing. And as we learned last week, Elimelech and Naomi They made some bad choices. Now you can begin to see why this book is important. We make really bad choices. Difficult circumstances begin to crush in on our story, and in their case it was a famine, and we begin to wrongly interpret the hidden force behind behind that story, behind our, those circumstances, and we make choices that we later regret. I'm 55 years old. Well, almost. 11 more days. And I have a number of regrets. Because I wrongly interpreted the hidden for- force behind my story. So that now my daily prayer and my morning devotion is this. God, would you please help me see who you really are? Would you please give me repentance of who I think you are that's not in line with who you really are? And give me faith that I would truly believe in who you really are. For I know that every decision, every regrettable decision has been made out of my lack of understanding, my, my, under, my lack of understanding who God really is. So now Naomi found herself in a regrettable place in Moab without any future there, without any anticipation that her uh, daughter-in-laws would be willing or even able to help. But... Naomi knew this in her extraordinary tragic place at verse 8 of chapter 1. She says to her two daughter-in-laws, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and me. Naomi knew this about God. God is a God of steadfast love or loving kindness. In that at the central core of her statement there is this deal kindly. At the central core of that statement is God's characteristic, this characteristic in the Hebrew called chesed. It's the first time we have it introduced to us. It is a word that we really don't have in English one-to-one equivalent. And so you've heard me say it's called loving kindness, but in other versions it's called steadfast love. Uh, we go all the way to the New Testament, and the Greek doesn't really have a good word for this as well. The Greek will sometimes call it grace, but it's more than grace. It is gentleness. It's faithfulness. It, it, it looks like mercy. It is goodness. It is self-control. Chesed. Uh, let me give you a short informative history of chesed. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Beginning at verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Uh, reads this way, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the people, but, because it, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments." Steadfast love, chesed. Uh, Verse 9 is really described beginning in verse 6 there. 
So let's just note a few things about the steadfast love of God. First, it is a sovereign love. Verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And now there wasn't anything impressive about these people. Look at verse 7. It was not because you were more of number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God simply chose to love them. And secondly, the steadfast love is a covenant-keeping love. Keep reading there. In verse 8, the second part, that that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is a God, the faithful God, who keeps covenants. I want you to note how the Lord is being identified there in our English versions, the capital L-O-R-D, which is the way our English Bibles identify the specific Hebrew covenant name, Yahweh. Uh, this is the, the name that God told Moses to use, uh, to use at the burning bush. So again, if you will, continue to get the history of the steadfast love, uh, a love that is God's sovereign God choosing to love and, and then covenanting, making an oath uh, to love these people. Uh, it, it is this kind of God. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. So continue to go back in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 3. And we're at the burning bush. I'm sure you're familiar with. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. His covenant name is I am who I am, or Yahweh. which is expresses the mind-boggling otherness of God that he has no beginning and no end. He doesn't come from something else. He always was. He isn't dependent upon anything. He always is. He won't be looking for something in the future to fulfill him, he always will be. Now this is really good news because he is one who is able to take nothing and make it into something. So verse 15 goes on this way. He says, God said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob have sent, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. See, Abram's story was one of idol worship. He, he didn't even know there was a singular God, uh, the God that only existed. He had no relationship to God, and he did not even seek after him. He was a sinner living out his sinful ways. And it was at that moment God chose to love him and to enter into a relationship with him and make a covenant with him. So one more, go back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. That the nuclear core of the character of God empowered God to call Abram his own, and then he changed Abram's story. 
and then gave him a new name, and it's in chapter 17. I don't have it there up for you, but let me just read it for you. Chapter 17 of Genesis. He says to Abram, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting uh, possession, and I will be their God. And he says, you will be called Abraham, God of many, man of many. Hmm. Well, Naomi knew this. She didn't know much about God, but she knew this about God. She knew that she was part of a greater story that God had sovereignly determined to begin through this man named Abram, whom he changed his story. He was now called Abraham, and then on down through God's people until it came down to Naomi's life, and she knew that she was part of a greater story, and at the nuclear core of the author of this story is his loving kindness, a sovereign choosing love, a covenant-keeping love, so that even in the extraordinary, extraordinary tragic circumstances that was of her own making, regrettable decisions, she knew where to go to make sense of her story. But we can't leave the chapter and the extraordinary or extraordinary without recognizing the extraordinary conversion of Ruth. Her, her story is our story in that since childhood, she had been taught to be loyal to her family. She had been taught to be, her, be for her town's honor, her country's honor, her king's honor, for her God's honors. Ultimately, to look out for herself, for to look out for herself was wrapped up in the being for her people and her gods. But Yahweh, the God who takes nothing and makes it into something, takes Ruth's story, which is one of idol worship, who, who didn't even know that there was only one living God who existed and had no relationship to God and was not even seeking him. She was a sinner living out her sinful existence in Moab, who, now did you catch the similarities between what God has told Abram to do and Abraham to do and what, God, uh, what Ruth does there? Uh, he says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. So that the God who takes unbelief and makes it into belief gave Ruth these words in chapter 1, verse 16. Ruth says to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for I will go, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. Ruth repudiates everything that she was taught to honor in her godless life. She was turning her back on her past and hating all that she was told to honor in order that she might have the true God because he is a God of loving kindness. His sovereign choosing love who took a Moabite woman and said, that's mine. A covenant-keeping love so that even where there is unbelief, Ruth had no belief. God gives faith. And Ruth knows where to go, to go to the God of loving kindness. At the nuclear core of the character of his loving kindness is his, is his loving kindness that transforms the extraordinary. But what about the ordinary? This is where we traffic most often. This is the routine, the commonplace, the everyday. Is there any hope for us in our everyday, ordinary, commonplace lives? Well, that's where we find our story working itself out in chapter 2. The second scene begins with an introduction of the next significant character in Ruth's story, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was 
Boaz. And we learn four things about this man. First, he is a relative, which will be significant, uh, extremely significant later. Secondly, he is a worthy man, a two-word phrase in the Hebrew meaning a great man, often meaning a warrior. In short, Boaz is a powerful man, but also dignified and good. Most all communities have powerful men, but many times they're not very good. Thirdly, he is of the clan of Elimelech, simply clarifying how he's a relative. And fourthly, his name is Boaz, which means in him is strength. In terms of status and stature within the community, he is on the opposite spectrum of Naomi and Ruth. The only connection they have is that they're related. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose side I find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, gleaning is about as basic, non-skilled, repetitive work an individual could do. This, this is the assembly line mind-numbing job. This is the commonplace. This is ordinary. And yet, there's, there was a risk. There's a risk for a woman like Ruth. Uh, notice what she hopes for in terms of where she's going to glean. So that she might glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. In, in God's law, part, part of the reflection of God's character was that his people were to be merciful and compassionate, particularly to those who were vulnerable and dependent upon him. Thus, fields were not to be fully harvested or scoured by the owner of the field so that the poor could enter into them and glean what was left. Leviticus 23:22 says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to these edges, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am Yahweh, your God. Nuclear core of Yahweh, of this God, is loving kindness which works itself out is compassionate. But it's one thing to have a law, and it's another to find those who are willing to obey it. To set aside greed and allow the field to be gleaned by the poor. And even if the owner is willing, you never know what the servants are going to be doing. See, it's a dangerous thing to be exposed to the loving kindness of God. It causes you to do things that are risky. uncomfortable. And that's where we find Ruth. She's in a place of vulnerability in a number of ways, yet when you, like Ruth, have been exposed to the nuclear core of God's loving kindness, loving kindness becomes the radiating power to take risks, to show loving kindness to others. And so in Ruth's case, towards her mother-in-law, Naomi, in the ordinary, the day-to-day, gleaning among the fields. But the question is, Is God there? Is he at the assembly line? Is he in your office when you're answering the phones? Is he at home while you wipe snot off a child's nose? Does God traffic in the ordinary? Verse 3. She happened. The Hebrew phrase actually mentions chance twice. A more precise translation would be this. As luck would have it, she chanced upon the field. Except for the Hebrew reader, there was no such thing as called luck or chance. Yahweh, the creator of the universe, orders and controls the universe and everything within it so that they had no problem casting lots 
for important decisions. Proverbs 16.33 reads this way. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It is his providence that our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament reminded his followers of the Father's attention to seemingly minor details of life when he, he tells them, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So that the same hand that sent the famine, the extraordinary, is the same hand gently guiding Ruth's feet in the ordinary. (laughs) And not only her feet. Verse 4, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Or better, it should sound something like this, and what do you know? (laughs) Guess who showed up? It's Boaz, just at the same time. Now, we need to stop here and consider the the matrix size implications of this view of a greater hidden world. Much of the world views human history in a cycle or a circle. And individual lives as an automatic, fate-driven, impersonal circle of life and death. When my wife and I were in China getting Emily... Uh, our translator, Chinese, of course, our translator, as we are talking about our two respective countries, she basically said that China is on the ascendancy and the United States is on the descendancy. Now, I took that as fighting words, um, but she wasn't meaning it that way. She was simply stating a fact in her mind, in the mind of the Chinese, and that is that the, all of history is just a big circle and It just so happens that they're coming up and we're going down. Disney popularized it for us, for our children, in The Lion King. The writer of Ecclesiastes, interestingly, takes up this possibility in Anthem and such a a view. And he writes, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. And then he concludes, all things are full of weariness. And there is a sense in the ordinary that we are in a daily grind, dragging ourselves out of bed in the morning, going to work, rushing home to change our clothes and take our children to endless practices. Or if you are single, I don't know what you do when you get home, but you you must do something. Or if you're elderly, possibly to an empty home of loneliness, eating dinner, watching TV, collapsing back in bed again, only to repeat tomorrow. So that the circle of life feels like it's crushing in on us. George Orwell, the novelist, essayist, and social critic wrote of this circle, one is prepared in the end to be defeated and broken up by life. And admittedly, it does kind of feel like that. But that's, that's not the reality. This is not the greater story we find ourselves in. See, the word of God is a story. And it reveals that we are not moving in a circle, but toward a great climax, a restoration of all things. And what God will do fully one day in his creation, he wants to do in your life today. He wants to restore your life around a redemption story. He exposes the ordinary story with his nuclear core of his character, loving kindness, so that he can even transform the most commonplace greeting. Look there in verse four. And so Boaz, he comes into the field from Bethlehem and he says to his reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Oh, wait a minute, let's say it again the right way. Yahweh Yahweh be with you, and they answered, Yahweh bless you. 
We get a sense of the man by how he treats his worker. And here is a man who has also been exposed to the loving kindness, God's loving kindness, his steadfast love. And so he blesses, not with a generic blessing, but a calling on God's covenant name, a recognition of God's sovereign, faithful, loving character. And guess what they do? They respond in kind. God is renewing Bethlehem. One man, one woman at a time through the exposure to his loving kindness, to his steadfast love. And he does it in and through the ordinary. And that's where you and I traffic. Continue with the story, verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Now, now at first glance, that doesn't seem like that's a significant uh, question, except when you consider how Boaz asks it in comparison to how we might ask it. We would say, who is that? But notice what Boaz says. He says, whose is this? Now, in Near Eastern culture, People are not thought of as simple individuals. Rather, they're thought in terms of community, a group or a family, a village or a clan. So Boaz was asking within those terms and implicit in that question, he's really asking who provides and protects that woman? And his expectation is that in some way, this woman was under someone's protection of at least a father but he learns quickly, this isn't Ruth's story. Verse 6. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, well, she's the young woman, uh, Moabite woman, who came back with Naomi from the country of Naomi. Now, I find it interesting how Ruth is identified there by the, the servant uh, repeatedly. Uh, she's identified by her old story. So that in her old story, the answer to the question of who provides and protects this woman, the answer would be no one. If Ruth identifies herself by her old story, she is at the bottom of the social status. I have a following rank, a rank of social status I want you to see here. And it gives us a sense of her vulnerability. So here's the status, the social status that would have been in the nation of Israel. And so you see at the very top, of course, we're in the days of the judges. Later they become kings. You have them at the top. And then we move down. Maybe Boaz is a clan leader, possibly, probably a clan subgroup leader. We have the uh, limit. Uh, there's the father. We have Naomi, uh, a wife, and look who's at the very bottom. She is financially destitute, without a friend, lonely, without her country, open to prejudice. She has no one to protect her, and considering Israel's dark ages of the judges, just go over to Judges chapter 19 and see how women were treated if you want to. Without a male protector, Ruth is vulnerable, especially sexually vulnerable. But she's no longer defining herself by the status of her old story, but rather of a new story, one which, in verse 12, we discover that she's under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who took her and brought her in close. Verse 7, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Vulnerable, shouldering the weight of providing for her and Naomi, yet we find a hardworking, risk-taking woman. So she came, into verse 7, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Ruth is a woman who has been exposed to and interpreting her story by a greater story powered by God's steadfast love. And so has Boaz. 
And we know this uh, because the next section where Boaz is the central character, he is showing undeniable symptoms of being exposed to God's loving kindness. Six symptoms. Consider your own life. Number one, your attention turns off yourself and onto others. Look at verses 8 through 10. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they, have, that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. Paying attention is the first step of incarnation, of going into the life of someone else, going into someone else's world. So that when Yahweh comes to Moses at the burning bush, he says, I have surely seen your affliction, the affliction of my people. Now, you've got to consider the social dis distance between uh, Boaz and Ruth. Boaz is connected. He's uh, wealthy. He's a male and an Israelite clan leader. But he bridges all of this separation with these words back there in verse 8. My daughter. Which does two things. One, it probably tells us there's even another connection, dis uh, uh, distance there, and that she is one generation away from him, and yet also do you hear the endearing statement, my daughter. When you become wealthy, as Boaz is, it's easy to lose awareness of the detailed needs of the poor. Money tends to elevate and separate us. Not with Boaz. Exposure to God's loving kindness results in paying attention to others. Symptom number two, you become real bossy in a good way. Notice Boaz didn't say, hey, you know what? If you need any help, you know, you know where to find me. He doesn't say it that way. No, seven commands, six towards Ruth. In his directness, in his clarity, he's not only protecting her physically, but he is protecting her emotionally. See, since Hesed is a sovereign choosing to love, Boaz, in his limited sovereignty, chooses to love her. And look at the effect, verse 10. Verse 10 is really the first window into, into her feelings. And Ruth here expresses this incredible sense of relief. I mean, you can just imagine. She's scared. She is lonely. She is vulnerable. She doesn't really know what's going to happen when she steps out of that door into this unknown world. And yet the cost of her hesed towards Naomi is taking on an emotional toll. And Boaz all of a sudden notices her, raised her status from a destitute foreign widow and put her on par socially with his Israelite field workers. And matter of fact, she's only shocked by one thing that he's overlooked. One indifference that he's shown. He is indifferent to her old story. A Moabite. You notice he doesn't mention that again. You become bossy in a good way. Absolutely clear, protecting her emotionally. This is what I will do for you. This is what you need to do. Symptom number three, you are humbled. You are humbled by others' stories of exposure to God's loving kindness. So Boaz answers her question. She says, why me? This is how he answers there in verse 11. He says, 
all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. Her reputation has gone before her. And he gives the specifics. And how you left your father and mother. Now, these are the same exact words we find in Genesis chapter 2 when it's talking about marriage. Typically, when you say, I'm going to leave my father and mother, you're going into marriage. But that's not her story. Boaz recognizes that she has actually left marriage in order to care for Naomi. And then he says, and your native land, not Boab, but her native land where she was comfortable and relatively secure and came to a people you did not know before. He's humbled. Ruth has burned her passport. She was all in. And Boaz knew it, and so he blesses her, verse 12. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done. The word repay is derived from shalom, meaning bountiful peace. It is a blessing on Ruth that she be fully restored to wholeness. And then he pays for, prays for a full reward where he's asking God who has the means to fully reward her for her hesed. Now, how does this happen practically? Well, God shows hesed love to us, which causes us to show hesed love to others, which puts us on a moral trajectory in life. We live in the Father's world, which is richly textured and organized around invisible bonds that knit humanity together. So that Paul writes, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he reap also. To warn, he writes this, to warn against living for one's own flesh. But the opposite is true. There is a moral shape to our Father's universe where what we sow truly leads to a reaping so that living chesed towards others will reap a fuller reward. So what does this mean? Well, students, some of my students are here. Be like Ruth. You've made an implicit covenant with your teachers, so work hard. Be faithful. Don't worry about recognition or grades. Singles, stop looking for the perfect mate. She or he is not out there. Rather, determine to live hesed towards one another and make a commitment. Young men, protect them sexually. Young women build into him, showing him and encouraging him godly characteristics. Both demonstrate love without thought for yourself. Use your limited sovereignty and choose to make a covenant. Worker, take serious Paul's words, obey your employer as Paul writes, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Marrieds, fixate on fulfilling your covenant and love without looking to be repaid. He's not easy to live with. Maybe she isn't either. Work that covenant out. It's risky. But here's the reality found in Boaz's blessing on her soul. And here's our reality. The reality, the Lord, he says, rewards you under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He knows God is going to hold Ruth close, warm, right next to his heart. God will care for her heart and God will care for your heart. God will care for her emotional life. God will care for your emotional life. Ruth's whole being is hidden in God. And it is here that then Ruth recognizes his humility. Look at verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. He has elevated her place. And she's humbled. Symptom number three, you're humbled by other stories. Symptom number four, 
exposure to God's loving kindness causes you to be joyful and generously hospitable. Look at verse 14. So at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. She probably came with little food. She came with little and left satisfied and with a doggy bag as well. And this is just the beginning of his generosity. He's beginning to start to have fun here. Um, He's getting his servants in on the action, verses 15 and 16. So when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Now the servants are getting exposed to this steadfast love, to this loving kindness. God is renewing Bethlehem one man at a time, one woman at a time, through the ordinary. By being exposed to loving kindness. And now, in one day, it has come full circle back to the extraordinary to Naomi's extraordinary story, verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, estimated to be about 30 pounds. 30 pounds of grain worth two weeks' wages. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied, the doggy bag. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you been? (laughs) Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. God literally fills Naomi up. He honors her misguided prayer in chapter 1, verse 8. And responds to Naomi's lament in chapter 1, not with a lecture, but with love. Because of God's intrusion of loving kindness, bitter Naomi is becoming blessed Naomi. In God's greater hidden world, neither our sin, nor our environment, nor our moodiness, or our despair despair defines us. We can be changed because an infinite God is personally involved in the ordinary details of our everyday lives. It's incredible. Now, at this moment in our story, keep in mind who knows what. Naomi doesn't know that Ruth has worked in Boaz's field yet. And Ruth doesn't know who Boaz is. So in this freeze frame moment, I can just see God gleefully waiting for the big reveal. (laughs) So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, well, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness is not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. Boom. Big reveal. Boaz is in a position to redeem Naomi's family. Now, I'm not going to say much here about the Redeemer. It would be called the kinsman Redeemer. That will come next week. But within the law, I'll give you this. God has a provision for male members of a clan to rescue 
another member, usually a woman who had fallen on hard times. And the Hebrew word for that redeemer is goel. A goel was a unique personalization of the law. Not just rules, but a person. And the goel owns the problem. See, it's relatively easy to give advice or direct people to where to get help or to give money to a situation, but a goel went way beyond this and owned the problem. See, symptom number six of being exposed to the loving kindness of God is that you begin to own other people's problems. You don't own everyone's problems. You have limited capacity, and you don't own all of their problems. Again, limited capacity. But there are times when, because you've been exposed to God's loving kindness, you are empowered and given the capacity to own someone else's problems. So notice how redemption is occurring here. It is top-down. God hesed Ruth. He entered into her mess. Ruth hesed Naomi. She entered into her mess. Boaz now has the potential to enter into their mess. Redeemers own the problem. And the weight of the other person's life falls on them. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to hold on to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then he took the weight. So he entered in, took on our problem, and he took on the weight of our lives. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are all healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. And he wants to enter into your mess. Each of us here have a story. And we're constantly examining that story. And we're interpreting that story according to our understanding of a greater hidden story that we find ourselves in. The book of Ruth is an invitation for you to interpret your story around reality. And that reality is that there is a sovereign, loving God who is making all things new, and he wants to make you new. And he wants to restore your story around a redemptive story. And that is that he is at work in your life, and he is doing a work, and it has a redemptive purpose. He wants to enter your mess and take on the weight of that mess. He wants to expose you to his steadfast love. And for you who have been exposed to that steadfast love, God says, now I empower you to go out and do the same. I will give you just what you need, just when you need it, in order to renew the city. One person at a time in the ordinary day of life. This is what God is calling us to do, to enter into his story. Father, we thank you. What a, what a remarkable, remarkable story this is. Little did we know, this little tiny books hidden away in the Old Testament speaks to us today. Father, our prayer today is that there are people here, there are individuals here today who have a wrecked story and it's a story that is wrecked because of their own making. But you have shown us, Father, that you're involved in that, that you're at work, and that you can restory our stories. You can redeem us. Father, we pray for them. We pray today would be the day they rest and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, you made it so simple for us. You just simply said, believe. Believe in my son, the Redeemer, 
who died for our sins, rose again to give us life, to restore us, to bring us into his story. Father, um, I am one of many here who have regrets. And it's tempting for me and us to despair of those decisions that we have made that were foolish. Father, because we are in you, you tell us to rethink that. And to look at our story in a new, fresh way that you are at work and were at work at that time and are at work now. And that you will redeem our stories. So, Father, thank you. It's amazing that um, the Ruths and Naomi and Boaz, you're asking us to enter into them, into their story. And it's just, here we are. So, Father, thank you for this Lord's Supper that we are about to take, a way to be reminded again, a way to enjoy that redemption. Christ gave his body found in this bread. Christ shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins to enter into a new covenant with us. So, Father, as we eat and as we drink, continue to redeem us and redeem our stories, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.